Well, we're gonna get busy. We have uh, lots of material to cover and we'll be talking about a very hot subject. In fact, I want you to remember when you were younger, if you remember, there, there was not so many people with dementia. Do you remember that? No. And as time is increasing, you know, we see more and more of that. Let me give you a little short intro. The only disclosure I have is that I don't have any disclosures. I do lots of research, many of that related to mental health. Uh, I don't have time to talk about these uh, research papers. I'm just going to mention them briefly. There's more than 60 of them. This one on how we're able to decrease benzos in our 10-day depression program. How lavender oil is as effective as Xanax uh, regarding anti-ansiolytic properties. How activated charcoal, anybody heard about activated charcoal? <laughs> how activated charcoal is actually very good for spider bites. And this one that came out in a journal of the American Heart Association, how we have been able to reverse diabetes in many instances. This is a clinical case in which this patient in a year and a half was able to reverse diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and dyslipidemia. This one on how a plant-based diet is one of the best strategies for weight control. This other one on how blood pressure responds very well to the intensive lifestyle interventions. This other one on how plant-based diets are one of the best foods to control a diabetic. And this one, I just presented this yesterday, very interesting research on how sexual abuse tends to be much more prevalent among bisexuals, uh, homosexuals, and people questioning their sexuality. This will come out in the Journal uh, of Sexual Medicine later on in the year. This other one on how doing things that go against your conscience is negative for your mental health. And this other one on how sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage are related to higher levels of depression and anxiety. This is in the Journal of Sexual Medicine. And this uh, other one also, uh, very interesting uh, uh, piece of, of research showing how bisexuals, homosexuals, and people questioning their sexuality tend to have depression levels that are more severe compared to those people that are straight. I'm co-author in the book, Rethink Food, with Hans Diehl, Barnard, Gregor, and S. Steele. And if you missed the American College of Lifestyle Medicine just a few days ago, you, met, you missed uh, meeting them, you know. Uh, we're very blessed that uh, Dr. George Guthrie is the new president of that organization. So uh, uh, very nice, positive change is happening there in that organization. Because of the research I do, I get invited all over the place. Anyone? Chinese? <laughs> this is in uh, Beijing, China, uh, Cairo, Egypt, uh, Moscow, Russia, New Zealand, Norway, Iceland, Australia, Chile, Belgium, Puerto Rico, India, and many more places that uh, we are sharing about that 
complete message that we have of healing. Let me share with you these uh, two resources before we go on. If you want to find out the research I was sharing you and many more papers, it is here in this page. And this is something that happens all the time. A few days later, I'm going to get an email, and it's going to say, Doctor, I couldn't find the research you were showing. And I'm going to ask him, did you wrote the address? No, I didn't. <laughs> so don't um, happen to be the same story. You can actually Google Francisco Ramirez Research Gate. Just Google those three things. You will find that page there, Nedley Clinic and Wimar Institute. I uh, work with Dr. Uh, Neil Nedley. People say that actually look like him. I'm the Spanish version of him, I guess. And also, I'm going to be sharing uh, some other research uh, studies. You can find those here in this uh, Twitter, twitter.com, EddieRDMD. So if you're interested in some of those papers, just go to that page. You should be able to find them all. So let us deal with our subject. And before going into that, I just want to mention to you what Isaac Newton said. He says, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So what I'm sharing to you is a composition of many ideas from different universities. And this is the advantage of having the light of the inspired word, you know, it gives us an insight. As you start analyzing some of the protocols being um, promoted, there are some issues there that could be improved upon. So I am uh, uh, talking about researchers in Harvard, Loma Linda, Bach Institute, UCLA, Massachusetts General Hospital, Cornell University, and some others. So what I'm sharing with you this afternoon is a combination of all that knowledge on how to help people with dementia. And see, what happened is that our current paradigm of medicine is changing. The old paradigm was you have a disease, you make the diagnosis, and there is one treatment. So there is some sort of linear relationship. I'm not criticizing it for some diseases. This works very well. But for some other diseases, this simple paradigm actually could be improved. For example, in our paper that we publish on the hypothesis of our depression program, we use that multifactorial um, uh, approach to dealing with the problem. See, depression doesn't come about usually just because of one thing. It is our hypothesis that there are 10 groups of causes, and when somebody has four or more of those causes, you end up with depression or anxiety or other mental health problems. So as you can see, you arrive to the same disease, but the trigger, the causes, happen to be multiple. And it is our job as health care providers to try to identify those causes so that we can give the right type of care. And this is something that in the literature you're going to find it under the name personalized medicine. 
Not everybody is the same. You have to adapt to the needs of the patients. So it is actually quite easy to get Alzheimer's dementia. If you want to have it, take note. <laughs> Just eat lots of sugar. Don't sleep enough. Don't you ever do exercise. Get rid of important hormones in your body. Make sure your vitamin D is quite low. And you're going to end up with what some researchers call type 2 Alzheimer's. And the reality is that, as I mentioned at the beginning, we are seeing more and more dementia on the myths that we have. Stats tells us that one out of 20 people on 60 years of age and one out of five in people that are 80 will have dementia. Tremendous rates. Now, some people question, well, doctor, what's the difference between dementia and normal aging? That's a very good and valid question. You could summarize this by the fact that as you age and a little bit reflection on your lifestyle, things start to slow down. But your intelligence remains the same. In other words, if you were very bright when you were young, you will continue to be very bright as you get old. And I have bad news. If you were not so bright when you were young, <laughs> unfortunately, later on, uh, things will remain the same. So dementia is not only a decrease in those processing abilities, but also this is accompanied by changes in personality and behavior. And as time progresses, things get worse and worse and worse. And usually, we make the diagnosis of dementia looking at different parameters, such as problems with the memory. There's some standardized tests that you can run to find that. And one of more cognitive domains, such as language, motor activity, recognition, or the frontal lobe usage, the executive function. And things get worse and worse with time. Now, Alzheimer's disease tends to be the most uh, common dementia. That's why uh, is the one that you hear the most if you are not in the medical uh, world, because it happens to be the most common type of dementia. Dementia. There's many types, subtypes of dementia, but Alzheimer's is the most popular. And then dementia goes through different stages. First, a mild type of dementia. Many times the person may not even be aware they're having troubles, but the people around them starts noticing, hey, there's something wrong with mother or aunt and so forth. And uh, if you do a physical exam at this level, you may not find much wrong unless you run one of these more specialized tests to find out that they're starting to have some cognition problems. Then you start going into the moderate in, in which you actually start even recognizing familiar things like your family and so forth. And then the very sad stage of this disease in which the person actually end up uh, losing the complete control of their world. They're completely dependent upon the care of others. And stats tells us that minority groups tend to have uh, very high rates of dementia, such as African-Americans, such as Hispanics, and another subgroup of people is females. 
research tells us that number one risk factor for uh, dementia is age. Second factor for dementia, unfortunately, is being female. So beware of that as you try to stop this problem. And let me explain to you some of these theories that are being run to try to understand how to stop this problem. You always need to answer the question, what's causing the problem? So then you can do something to stop it. For example, in atherosclerosis, something interesting happens. In your body, you have some factors that help build plaque in your arteries. But at the same time, you have some factors that help remove some of that plaque. Question, how come some people end up with the atherosclerosis and some don't? It depends which of these processes you're actually encouraging by the way that you live. The same story happens with your bones. There are some bones that actually, some cells that actually destroy your bones. At the same time, there are some cells that build those bones. Question, how come some people end up with weak bones and some end up with strong bones? It has to do which of those processes you're actually encouraging and mostly by the way that you live. And see, the change of paradigm is like this. Suppose that you have never seen a forest. You're probably from Arizona, I imagine, you know. And you come to a place where they had a forest fire. And you're trying to investigate how did this disaster happen. But what you see is a bunch of ash everywhere. So you come to the logical conclusion, man, ash causes tremendous damage to trees. It is a logical conclusion, but not necessarily correct. That is the paradigm regarding the amyloid plaque. See, there are some researchers that are suggesting that that amyloid plaque is there to help you, not to harm you. Fascinating, isn't it? And they're proposing, as they're studying this plaque, this amyloid plaque, for example, it is, has tremendous affinity for toxic metals such as mercury and copper. In other words, if you are exposing yourself heavily to these things, the brain will respond creating plaque to try to stop this process. And there's some very good research on, on the subject showing that not only protects against metals, but also against infections, such as Dr. Moore, very interesting research that he has, showing how many infectious agents are able to be stopped by this amyloid plaque. And he is not alone. Rudy Tansy, fabulous researcher on the world of Alzheimer's, he also is even describing how this physiopathology could be happening. He is theorizing that because the brain is connected to the outside world via the olfactory nerve, 
many things that affect the olfactory nerve can go and climb up to the brain and start causing disaster up there, but then we have a response by the amyloid plaque trying to buffer that damage. Now, there's also some interesting research, especially uh, um, in, in the universities in, in, in Europe, in which they try to make these experimental medications to try to dissolve the plaque. And you know what happened? Patients actually get worse. See, because you are removing that protection and then those toxins can cause even greater damage. So one of the issues that start that process of dementia is directly related to the pathways of inflammation. So sometimes could be something uh, th that is not infectious, such as the wrong type of foods, like eating trans fats or eating simple carbohydrates in higher levels, or sometimes it could be things like microbes. So in the same way that there was that balance and counterbalance with the building of the bone and destroying the bone, in the same way there are mechanisms in your brain in which formation of synapses are encouraged and destruction of synapses are encouraged depending on the way that you are living. And we could talk about that process, it's a very interesting uh, metabolic pathway, and one of those key genes is this APP gene, which happens to be one of those switches that are affected by inflammation. And inflammation is a very important topic. I don't have much time to talk about it, but just briefly I could summarize this, that it is called the secret killer because many people can have this inflammation going on in their bodies and they don't have symptoms. That's why Time Magazine used a whole issue to talk about the subject and they made the analogy with fire. And this is the way that I like to explain it to my patients. I tell them, look, it is like a fireplace. You have a fireplace in which you have fire inside there. As long as the fire stays inside, it's fine. You know, you, you get the blessing of the heat and so forth. That is acute inflammation. That is not harmful as long as it's inside there. Chronic inflammation is when the fire starts to get out of here, and then you can get in a big trouble as that fire comes out and that encourages more fire and so forth, that is chronic inflammation. So these things need to be, need to be pinpoint. What is the trigger of that inflammation? And then what some researchers are suggesting, as we were proposing that 10-hit hypothesis for depression, 
regarding dementia, they are proposing that there may be uh, three or more paths that lead to that Alzheimer's. And that has to do by triggering that APP that I mentioned to you, which happens to be in the membrane of the neurons, and that cascade effect starts to trigger in which those synapses start to be affected. So they propose that there are three big groups. Type number one is the inflammatory. And this one has to do with things related to inflammation, as we were talking a minute ago. And it could be infectious, you know, microbes and so forth, or it could be sterile inflammation. The source of this inflammation could be uh, foods and so forth. And there is a central switch of inflammation called the NF-kappa-beta. You need to do a little bit of uh, a genetic analysis there to find this uh, genetic switch. And when NF-kappa-beta, it's on, it's the main switch, one of the main switches of inflammation in the body. And then you also have a second type called the atrophic type. And this one has to do with the fact that for the brain to thrive, it needs to have a right balance of the right things so it can progress its normal function. For example, you need to have good thyroid levels, you need to have testosterone. Females, that's one of the reasons why the high risk for dementia, because as they go through the uh, menopause and so forth, all that changes in the hormone levels can have a negative effect at the level of the brain. But also, if you have trauma, you could also go also in this second pathway that will trigger that also atrophic pathway. And a third thing is vascular issues, atherosclerosis to the brain, that lack of oxygen and nutrients doesn't give that support to the brain, and then that atrophic type occurs. And then there's a third type, called toxins, and this one has to do with a variety of toxins from uh, fungus that could grow, you know, in a, in a home, and you expose yourself to that, and so forth. So, usually, when somebody ends up with Alzheimer's, dementia, as you start analyzing that case, you will find out that usually it's not just one type that happened to trigger this, but it is a combination of this. And this is one of the big problems that I see with some patients that are being diagnosed with dementia. See, the doctor may do a wonderful job at finally understanding what is the problem and putting a label on that patient saying, okay, you have this disease, you have dementia. But then this story ends up there. The uh, physician diagnosing this doesn't go the next step to try to answer that question, what could be the cause of this dementia? They prescribe a, a medication and says, I'm sorry, you know, you have this disease and I'll see you next month. Let's see how the medication is working for you. But 
What about checking toxins? What about uh, uh, checking the diet? What about the exercise patterns? What about measuring inflammation? What about understanding which traffic factors may be missing and so forth? So you have to do a thorough research to start pinpointing what may be the cause of the problem. And trying to fix Alzheimer's with just a one medication without further investigating is as if your cell phone starts to, to work, uh, stops working, and you say, oh, just give it a shake up, it will work again. Is that that simple? No, isn't it? There are so many things that could be wrong. Is it the processor? Is it the memory? Is it the glass? Is it because it's not charged? You need to find out what is the problem, then you're able to fix the problem. So that balance is one of those key issues to try to understand where this problem comes from. And a review of the literature has shown that from 244 clinical trials related to medication for Alzheimer's, 243 of them have failed. And the one that work happens to work for a very small patient population, and it happens to work for a very short time, and then that patient will become part of the other group and will continue going down and down. So the solution of this problem does not lie with medication. And I like how Dr. Dale puts, it, puts this. He says, is as you have a roof with 36 holes, and you try to plug in just one or two, when the rain comes, what happens? It's gonna get flooded inside, isn't it? And I see this very often. You know, I travel very much. I've been in 32 countries the last two years. And as I'm sitting down there, I get bumped all the time to business class, so you have a nice seat that you can lay down and everything. And I am observing the patients, the, the, the passengers uh, next to me. <laughs> they all become patients, isn't it, <laughs> for a doctor? So I see that the person next to me, I suppose he's very worried about dementia because he is very busy solving this Sudoku and crosswords and so forth, you know. <laughs> Which is good, you know, it's good to have some activity of the brain. But the problem is that he is leaving too many holes undone. When the beverage cart comes, he chooses the wrong thing. Alcohol, you know, bad, you know, there's a hole there that is undone. And then when the meal cart comes, he chooses the steak, you know, instead of some other more healthy option. There's another hole there undone. And then as the flight progresses, even though he has the ability to make his, his chair a bed, he rather wasted his time watching movies the whole night long instead of resting. Another whole there being undone. So can you see the problem here? You, know, you may focus very much into one or two, but you are leaving the rest of the holes undone. And researchers suggest that there is a 10-year window to stop this problem. 
if you pass above that threshold, this domino effect will continue, will continue, will continue, and you will not be able to stop that process. And one key gene here is this APOE4 that, thank God, I don't have it. I did a genetic test, and, and I came uh, negative to it. See, this gene, when you see the function of the gene, you're going to realize that this is very related to inflammation, okay? So in the old days, when hygiene was not as available as it is today, the population of people that had that gene actually had an advantage. But when uh, uh, parasites and things like those would infect you, those people that had the APOE4 gene were more efficient at triggering inflammation in their body, and they were able to fight that worm and had an advantage over those that did not. But today's world has completely changed. We live nowadays in a very clean world around us. Yes, parasites still are there and so forth, but it's not as much uh, incidence and prevalence as in the past. So, unfortunately, those people that inherit those genes tend to have a very aggressive inflammatory response. So therefore, their brains also have a very negative effect of this. That's why those people, if you have one copy, you have very high risk. And if you have both copies of these genes inherited from both sides of your parents, you have an extremely high risk for a very young onset type of dementia. So as we were mentioning, type 1, we said, is that inflammatory, and usually there is that APOE4. And when you do uh, analysis of this, you will find out that the clear signals of inflammation through IL-6 or TNF-alpha or the high-sensitivity C-reactive protein are going to be present. And also, this shows by when you analyze the patient, the patient needs, tends to have more of an amnesic type of dementia. And if you do an imaging study, you will see that there is a clear atrophy of that hippocampus. So basically, you have that metabolic issue. Then, as we mentioned, type 2 has to do with all those trophic factors that are supposed to nurture those synapses and neurons. And this one, the patient usually says, there's nothing wrong with me. It's my wife the problem. That's why she brought me. <laughs> and they're, they're a little bit on denial. This one happened to be a little bit older than the type 1. And then you have one that is not one but not two is in between. It is the glycotoxic. And this one, the common denominator is that insulin resistance. Okay, so diabetics or even pre-diabetics. Again, when you're doing that diagnosis of dementia, you have to check those things. You know, how is that hemoglobin A1C and so forth. And then the one with the toxins, the type 3, this one usually doesn't have that APOE4 present, 
and this one could present as depression. You diagnose the patient with depression, and then a few months, a few years later, the same patient comes, and then you diagnose it with uh, uh, dementia. And it could be many different types of toxic metals, toxins, or even things like bacteria and mold. So Dr. Ashley uh, did a wonderful job, this is from Australia, on trying to put that link between metals and the encouragement of amyloid plaque in the brain. So we need to remove as many of those possible causes. We need to seal as many of those holes in that roof if we want to stop this problem. And today we are so blessed with so much technology that help us pinpoint what is the cause such as searching for some of those hormones, such as checking levels in the, brain, in, the, in the body for certain key nutrients, such as imaging studies so that it can help us understand what kind of problem may be facing. So this takes time and it can be done in an iterative way. You know, you find the problem and then the patient is not responding. Well, go ahead and check more. Go and find more possible causes until you have them all. There's some tests that have been created for this or you can use in your clinical consultation the labs and so forth that you have in your, rain, in, in, in your hand. And we not only want levels normal, we want them optimum. Okay, so for example, if we're talking about a vitamin D, we not only want a 30, which could be considered normal, but we want a higher normal, 40, 50. And this is something very interesting. I, I have been able to sit down with some of these cutting-edge researchers on this dementia, and I was checking notes with what we do with depression. We were talking to, to them, and it's actually a very similar protocol that we are doing with our dementia problem, programs in, in Weimar and what some of these researchers are doing with their patients because you try to identify the cause. And it is fantastic what happens once you start plugging in those holes and start putting things on range and so forth. The clarity of the mind, the possibility of that frontal lobe function and so forth, and even changes at the level of hippocampus. You can literally see that change. So let us talk about some of those factors for the clinical practice. What are we going to focus to help us tackle that dementia? Number one thing, we need God's diet. Have you heard about that diet? <laughs> A whole foods, plant-based diet. And it's not only any type of uh, plant-based diet, but it's one that is low in simple carbs. It's one that is nice and rich with all those antioxidants. And that's going to help us deal with our lipids and help us deal with some of those factors of inflammation. In this uh, study, 
published in the Journal of Pharmaceutical Research, they were finding out what are some of the most common things that are causing inflammation and cancer. And which is the number one there? Diet. You know, as important as tobacco is, diet is actually a more important factor. And look at this fascinating study. This is a published uh, study in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. They had two groups of patients. Uh, both, both groups stayed fasting overnight. One group continued fasting. The other group ate what this researchers called a mixed meal, which was composed of white bread with eggs and sausage and some hash browns. Remember I told you that NF-kappa-beta, the main central switch for inflammation, scientists in this study were following up that gene. And this is what happened. As soon as they ate that meal, the NF-kappa-beta just shoot up. And you know, that actually continued for more than a day. Now, if you were to eat an inflammatory meal once a year, the reality is that not much is going to happen to you. But inflammatory breakfast, inflammatory lunch, inflammatory supper, what you're doing, you're grabbing those logs of wood and putting them in the fireplace and putting more and more and more and more. And what is going to happen to that fireplace? That fire, sooner or later, is going to start going out of where it's supposed to, and you are going to get yourself in really big trouble. Or this other one, published in the journal Science, how two pounds of char-grilled steak is equivalent to smoking 600 cigarettes in the potential for inflammation. Tremendous inflammatory potential in the type of food that you are eating. And I actually happen to have done a little bit of research on the subject. We know very well uh, that uh, cigarette usage is related to higher levels of both depression and anxiety, which is interesting, isn't it? Because the smoker usually does that to deal with their anxiety. Yet we found out that if you're able to quit smoking, your anxiety actually goes lower than when you were a smoker. This one is, is published in the journal Drug Metabolisms and Pharmacokinetics. The nicotine is the effect. We didn't include vaping there, but we assume because uh, the vaping has that nicotine. And this other one, how one cigarette that you smoke turns on that central switch, that NF-kappa-beta, not just for half an hour, not just for one day, but for two days or more. Now, the smoker doesn't smoke one cigarette, isn't it? So the tremendous inflammation that they are causing in their body is overwhelming. And this other one also that, that we uh, did on alcohol and, and the negative effect, not only on cognition, but also on the mood levels. So here are some of those factors of inflammation. Alcohol, as we mentioned, too much sunlight, okay? How do you know you got too much sunlight? Well, you start seeing the symptoms of inflammation. Remember in medical school, 
redness and pain and tumor and so forth. Well, it starts getting red and so forth. Too much sunlight, beware. It can be inflammatory. Cigarette smoking. Viruses, you know, very common viruses today, such as the papillomavirus. Okay. Some research uh, is uh, suggesting that about 70% of the high school students today have the papillomavirus. Yes, there's a vaccine for it, but it's only for six viruses. And there's more than 100 different types of them. So that doesn't exclude you from them. Certain bacteria also, very inflammatory. And how you cook and what you eat also, very important factors for inflammation and pollution. You could summarize that in this. Some people ask, well, doctor, what about coconut oil? Okay, this is from the researchers that just wrote a book from Loma Linda. This is what they write in their, in their, in their book. Many of our patients ask whether coconut oil is healthy for the brain. Our answer is no. It is rare plant oil that contains saturated fat. It also increases LDL, the bad cholesterol, because vascular health is so critical to cognitive health. We strongly recommend plants and nuts fats, which are packed with monounsaturated fats that actually decrease cholesterol levels. Be careful with that. Michael Greger, nutritionfacts.org, also just came out with another video on this subject also supporting this hypothesis. Be careful with that. Not because something is popular, it means it's good for you, okay? Be aware of that. And um, also make sure you're eating those omega-3s that have that anti-inflammatory effect. So uh, another thing that you need to do that these uh, researchers are proposing is to switch to two meals a day. Fascinating, isn't it? how this was written so long ago and finally the research on the subject is starting to become uh, uh, mainline you know and you're gonna find this under the term intermittent fasting if you're interested in, in finding that there. there's hundreds of research papers nowadays and you need to have 12 hours between the last meal and breakfast. I didn't say breakfast and the last meal, okay? Between the last meal and breakfast, that ketosis throughout the night is encouraging the brain for healing and so forth. This not only will help you with the ketosis, but also reduces the level of insulin. Too much insulin in the body can have inflammatory effects, and it actually will help you reduce that plaque. And I don't have time to talk about this. this is something I'm very passionate about it. But there's some very interesting research. Not only what you eat has an effect on the internal genes uh, that, that manage the clock and circadian rhythms. See, because if the circadian rhythm is affected, the whole body is affected. So not only what you eat, but at what time you eat. Fascinating research. This is one of the things that I do to switch from time zone from one place to another one. Your meal timing is so important. Again, I don't have time to explain you that. I actually want to write a whole book about it. You know, I have here the algorithm in my head on how to do that. Just two weeks ago, I was in Perth uh, doing some health evangelism there. 
And uh, I arrived to the office, uh, I arrived in the airport at 10, went to the office, worked the whole day. No, I was not sleeping or anything. Went to bed, slept very good, thank God. Wake up and, 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 and continue working, you know. You can do that, I know, if you follow that uh, algorithm. And um, this other paper, very interesting, how one of the best ways of managing a diabetic patient is not with multiple meals, but rather with two large meals. And this is uh, the head researcher of the uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine nowadays. She is an Adventist from Czechoslovakia. And you see this very common nowadays, you know, New York Times and so forth, talking about that importance of that intermittent fasting. And remember when you went to medical school and you were learning about the physiology of the digestive tract, how there is this special movement called MMC that happens to occur only when you have five to six hours of fasting? That movement of cleansing in your digestive tract is not gonna happen if you are putting meals before that five to six hour window. That's why if you Google multiple meals and colon cancer, you're gonna find multiple papers talking about that. Another thing is sleep. And this is such an important factor. And people sometimes try to negotiate with me. Don't negotiate with me, you know. <laughs> well, what about six? What about five? <laughs> no, you need to have enough sleep. There is some very new research that is showing that there's actually a lymphatic system in your brain that happens to activate when you are sleeping and throughout the day, all these metabolic toxins are being built up and at night they need to be cleansed. And if you're not sleeping enough, as this study very well puts it, finish your sleep, at, else your brain begins to eat to itself. And it's very true because those metabolic toxins are gonna send things towards the inflammatory direction instead of the building up of those synapses. Another one very important, physical exercise. And we are too sedentary. You know, I remember my wife and I spent some time in Tanzania, in the rural area of Tanzania. There were no markets there to buy food. So what do people eat? They had to go and work with that whole day in and day out. There was no running water. Where did they get the water from? Well, you see them there with their buckets walking to the river, to the lake, to the, to the fountain. There was no electricity or gas to cook. How did they cook? You see them there with their axe walking for kilometers and trying to cut their trees so they could uh, cook their meals. Every single thing in their life is exercise-based. And that was the same for our ancestors. And you know, today, I tell my patients, you know, hey, I want you to do 50 minutes of exercise. <gasps> 50 minutes? If this was Africa, that would be vacation time, isn't it? <laughs> but we are too sedentary. And don't trick yourself. Oh, I'm just going to go for a walk and that's it. What about your upper body? You know, what are you doing for that upper body so it can be balanced? We, uh, 
um, did this uh, study, this in medicine, science, and sports and exercise, showing how your fitness can increase dramatically in a matter of 18 days. Okay. As you start doing that type of aerobic exercise, fitness uh, with that marker called METS, which actually predicts uh, longevity and mortality. Okay? So uh, as you increase that factor, as you become more fit, you actually decrease the risk of disease and dying. Also, make sure you're challenging your brain. As I tell my patients, one of the worst things you can do for your brain is retirement. Okay? <laughs> because you, start, you stop solving complex problems. And see, this is a bell curve. Too much stress is very negative for the brain, but not enough is also very harmful to your brain. So you need to find yourself to get yourself in trouble. Okay? Volunteer or do something to keep that brain active and not only active but solving complex problems and that's why you have things like the book of proverbs that is a good exercise to do or to study prophecy and understand these things that is putting that frontal lobe to work also among some laboratories make sure that homocysteine is under seven this is actually a very common problem as we uh, test many of the patients. Many of them are actually having problems with homocysteine. And you can have atherosclerosis on a vegan diet if you have this out of control. And this could be related to that vitamin B12. So also make sure you have good levels. People have all kinds of theories. Well, my gut makes some, my gut makes some of this vitamin B12, or I'm taking this and that. Well, go and test your hypothesis. Measure yourself and see where you're at, and try to see if your hypothesis is actually working. Okay, and make sure you have those good levels of vitamin B12. Also. Make sure that albumin to globulin and those inflammatory markets are under control. This is so important. Many of the dementias, not only the 1.5, but many of the dementias have some insulin resistance at the level of the brain. So in somebody that is... Uh, uh, pre-diabetic or diabetic, that's the reason why they are at higher risk for a dementia. So this is something that you yourself should be checking yourself. As I show you in the study uh, from this patient from Weimar, how that diabetes was able to reverse. Make sure the hormones are in balance. Make sure you have good social support. Make sure you deal with stress correctly, with spiritual resources, and the A, B, C of cognitive behavioral therapy. And also, make sure that you avoid things like meditation. Fabulous article. Everybody should read this article. Just Google in your, in your browser, can meditation be bad for you? And this is found in the journal The Humanist. Just put that in your browser. Fabulous article. 
And this book I'm reading at the moment, The Buddha Peel, how many of those studies that show the advantages of meditation actually are flawed. They're not good studies. They're not telling you the rest of the story. Very good uh, book, uh, Oxford University. And this one also, this study just came in last week. You find it in my Twitter there. How mindfulness uh, actually is not as solid as they make it sound like and how this is coming from Buddhism and so forth. Very interesting article. You'll find it there in my Twitter also. Make sure the GI health is correct, vitamin D3. Avoid caffeine. You'll find this uh, on my uh, page dradramirez.com. Uh, this is a study. This lady goes to a functional MRI uh, and take one before coffee. She takes one cup of coffee. This is the brain before the coffee. This is the brain after the coffee. And this is from ABC News. Okay? Decreasing blood flow from a 40 to 50% to the brain. Make sure you're eating enough antioxidants. Avoid alcohol. Make sure you don't have sleep apnea. Make sure that toxic uh, metal toxicity is not in the body. It's a paper I did showing how fish consumption relates to mental health. And by dealing with those factors, you'll be able to stop this process. So in closing, let me share with you this, paper, this clinical case in, in uh, journal Aging. This lady uh, comes to uh, consultation because she has problems forgetting. She starts reading, and by the end, the time she gets to the end of the page, she forgot what she read. She has lived in the same place for years and years and years, and now as she is driving home, she cannot find her way. She works as an executive secretary, and uh, she does, she's not able to keep up with learning all those uh, telephone numbers and so forth. She gets those 36 factors identified and starts to do the changes, and suddenly she becomes asymptomatic. Memory returns, her sharpness returns, and so forth. But then she gets an, uh, a flu, a viral flu, and she gets off the program, and soon she starts seeing that the memory problems start to come in. She starts to get lost and so forth. That was enough to scare her off to get back on the program. And I could share you many more of these uh, cases, another 74-year-old, problems with memory and word finding, APOE4 positive. They tried medication, did not help at all, makes the lifestyle changes, and in a matter of six months, her, uh, his uh, test for dementia went from totally negative to totally positive in, to, um, in, in a positive way. Or this early onset lady with 49 years old, problems uh, word finding. She used to learn. She used to know a second language. She starts to forget that second language. She has problems recognizing faces, and um, she starts with that early amnesic type of problem. She starts doing the lifestyle changes, and in a matter of one year, she is completely asymptomatic. So as you can see. There is hope, number one, to prevent dementia, and number two, there is hope to stop this process from continuing harming the brain as you make this intensive lifestyle in
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.